Kids, you know how there are things, some things in life that can't be two things at once? Now you're probably saying to yourself, what do you mean, Pastor Mark? What are you talking about? Well, there are things in life, there are things in our lives that can't be two things at once. And I'll give you some examples so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, something of what I'm talking about. So in nature, so take nature. Uh, a caterpillar, you've seen caterpillars, right? But you can't have a caterpillar be a butterfly at the same time he's a caterpillar, right? He's either a caterpillar or he turns butterfly later on when he gets older. So he can't be both things at once. I'll give you another example. A watermelon seed. You've perhaps eaten watermelon recently. Although a lot of, we eat a lot of seedless watermelons these days, but a watermelon seed can't be a seed and a watermelon plant at the same time. Now eventually it'll become a plant if it's planted and watered and all that sort of stuff. But you can't have the seed be the plant at the same time, right? Make sense? Well, the same is true in, in certain roles in life. A role is a position that somebody has. So let me give you an example. A teacher, do we have any teachers in here? Yes, we do. Uh, Mr. Art. Mr. Art is a teacher. A teacher cannot be the student. Well, the same is true in, in certain roles in life. A role is a position that somebody has. So let me give you an example. A teacher, do we have any teachers in here? Yes, we do. Uh, Mr. Art. Mr. Art is a teacher. A teacher cannot be the student that he teaches at the same time. Now, he could be a student, and he's a lifelong student of the Bible, we, and we all should be. But he can't be the teacher in his classroom and the student he's teaching at the same time, can he? Right? He can't, can't be both. Now, he can be a student, but he's not going to be the teacher when he's the student. Well, the same is true, kids. Now, that I'm talking about roles now. Uh, positions that one holds. Uh, the same is true in biblical times of certain roles. And I'm going to give you the example now. The Bible says that you couldn't hold, or indicates rather, that you couldn't hold the office, the position, the role of being a priest and being the role, filling the role of being a king at the same time. Make sense? Does that understand that? There's one exception to that, and that's the exception to the rule, and that's a man named Melchizedek. And that's who we're looking at today, who is both a king and a priest at the same time. And thus, he was a very, very good forerunner to Jesus, who is a king and a priest, and oh, by the way, the prophet of the church as well, prophet, priest, and king. We're going to look at two offices, priest and king, today through the life and the experience of Melchizedek and the writer of the Hebrews' uh, discussion about him in this passage. So, in the final verse of the last chapter, we read it, uh, verse 20 of chapter 6. In verse 20 of chapter 6, the writer to the Hebrews tells his readers, that's us, that Jesus has quote, become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as I already indicated, this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, that we read just a few moments ago. 
By the way, this isn't the very first time the writer of the Hebrews mentions Melchizedek in his, in his sermon. This is a sermon, not a letter. He mentioned it twice in chapter 5, Melchizedek's name, in verses 6 and 10. But the writer didn't explain back in chapter 5, when he mentioned Melchizedek's name, he didn't explain what he meant by his comparison of Jesus with Melchizedek on those occasions back in chapter 5. Well, now he's going to explain what's the connection between the two of them. What is the association between Melchizedek and Jesus? Again, the last the last verse there, verse 20 of chapter 6, quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, where the author, who is King David, as we saw when I read it, King David prophetically in Psalm 110 identifies the role of the then future Messiah, the, 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 the role that he would play, namely that of a priest. Now, He also, in Psalm 110, as we saw in the first few verses, he plays the role of a king. But the emphasis right now, by the writer of the Hebrews, is on his office as priest. So that's where we're going to spend more of our time uh, in our remaining time together here in the message. Um, David, when he's writing Psalm 110, his reference to Melchizedek, that reference in Psalm 110 harkens back to Genesis 14 which we also read a little bit of. And back in Genesis 14, um, lost my place here. And that, oh yeah, and, that, and that's where the, the writer of Hebrews, Genesis 14, and what we read there about Melchizedek, the writer of the Hebrews wants his readers uh, and those who hear the sermon, heard it originally, he wants us to be transported back to that occasion when Abraham encountered Melchizedek. That's the purpose of what he's writing here. He wants us to think back, and he knew his Jewish audience, that's why he's called the writer to the Hebrews, these were Jewish Christians, he knows they know their Bibles. And he, know, they, he knows they know the account, and they know what he's referring to, and the details of that passage uh, that we also know. So, um, There are two points we're going to look at today in our remaining time together. The first are found in verses 1 through 3, and the remaining points, uh, the the second point is found in verses 4 through 10. So first, verses 1 through 3, we see the uniqueness of Melchizedek's person. The uniqueness of Melchizedek's person. And then the second point is the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. The uniqueness of his person and the superiority of his priesthood over Levites, the Levitical priesthood, by the way. That's the comparison. But we'll get to that in the second point. So first, the uniqueness of Melchizedek's person. Let's begin with a brief summary of what's going on back in Genesis 14. I didn't read the whole text that's relevant. There was some details that uh, were found earlier in that chapter, but I'll recall them for you now. There were four kings led by a man, a, a, a great king named Chedorlaomer. Try saying that fast several times. Um, uh, and he, he was from a place called Elam, which is modern-day Persia, excuse me, uh, Iran. Uh, and uh, these four kings, led by Chedorlaomer, had recently routed uh, five other kings in a battle, uh, including one of those five kings that the four kings routed was the king of Sodom. Now, we're not going to talk about what happened in Sodom later on, 
But uh, we're just talking about the king of Sodom. And, um, and that happens to be where uh, the great patriarch Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living, as you all know. I'm pretty sure. Well, when these kings, these four kings, conquered Sodom, what they did was they captured and carted off Lot and his family uh, with them, took them as captives. And Abraham, upon hearing uh, or receiving news of Lot's captivity by these four kings, Abraham proceeds to um, gather together and arm an army of his own, and he sets off in pursuit of these four kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot and uh, the members of the family. And he eventually catches up with them. He and his army catch up with these four kings. He attacks them and he defeats them. And he rescues Lot, as he was intent on doing. It was on his return from that battle with those four kings, on his return, that Abraham meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek, during their time together, serves bread and wine, and after doing this, serves it to Abraham, and after doing this, he pronounces a blessing on Abraham, the great patriarch Abraham, whose descendant was Levi. Okay, But Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Abraham, in turn, after the blessing, he pays homage to Melchizedek by presenting to this this figure, a tenth of the spoils obtained in his victories over the four kings. And by the way, I do think that points to tithing. That's all I'm going to say about it, but I think it is a uh, one of the texts that does make the point that tithing is, uh, is appropriate. And it still is in the New Testament, I think, as well. You can prove it. Anyway, um, Abraham honors this king. With a tenth of all that he collected from uh, the spoils from the from the victory, so who exactly is this guy, this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek? Well, we don't know much about him. Most of what we know about him is right here in this passage, though, in uh, Hebrews seven. We know he was a king. He was a king of Salem. Now. Usually people, we read it and we go, Salem. I intentionally quote, uh, pronounce it Salem because that's how the Hebrew would have uh, sounds. Uh, but for another reason. Uh, and that is because Salem has traditionally been associated with Jeru Salem. We don't say Jeru Salem. We say Jeru Salem. Um, and it was traditionally associated, has been traditionally associated with Jerusalem. And it may be the place where Salem was located, but a case can be made for identifying it also with a place called Shechem. You've probably heard of Shechem. Um, or another place called Beit Shean. Um, and, but the writer of Hebrews, he really doesn't, she doesn't show any particular concern to equate uh, Salem with Jerusalem. He's not really concerned about going... Now, keep in mind, this is the king of our, our current capital, uh, uh, well, the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. He's not concerned about that. He only wants his readers, uh, these, uh, these Jewish Christians, he only wants them to note that Salem, uh, Salem's meaning, Salem is shalom, 
It means peace. It's a variant on the word uh, shalom. It means peace. Actually, shalom is a variant on uh, salem. And so it, that's the king of peace. The king of Salem is king of peace. And he also wants us to note that uh, Melchizedek's name uh, means king of righteousness. Actually, it means my king of righteousness. Probably, and the reason he wants to note this uh, about to his readers, to his Jewish readers, is probably because he recognizes uh, both uh, the king of peace and the king of righteousness as titles that pre, are prefigurative of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, whom his, uh, whom his, writer, uh, his readers worship as their Savior and God and whom we also do so. So Melchizedek was a king. A great king, but a mysterious king. He was a, what is sometimes referred to as a sacral king. That is sacred. He was a priestly king. He was a priest, as well as a king. Um, But not the kind of priest which the Jews were familiar with. Neither the Jews of David's day and certainly not the Jews of Paul's day. I mean, not Paul, but uh, the writer of the Hebrews' day in the first century. The Jews of uh, his Jewish readers, who were now Christians, but had come out of Judaism, they were familiar with a very different kind of priest, and that was the Levitical priests. The Levitical priesthood was established by Moses, Actually, God speaking through Moses, but Moses as the intermediator, mediator rather, mediating the will of God through the law. That's why it's called the law of Moses sometimes. It's God's law too, but it's also the law of Moses. And so the Levitical priesthood was established by Moses through the Levitical law, and uh, its priests had to be descended from Levi, one of the twelve sons of uh, Jacob. And Levi, by the way, was the great-grandson, uh, his great-grand... Uh, not only had, did the priests have to be descended from Levi, but they had to be specifically descended from Levi's great-grandson, is that right? Great-grandson, Aaron. Aaron was the great-grandson of Levi. So the priests had to come through the line of Aaron, and he was a Levite, in order uh, to be a Levitical priest. Now, the priesthood to which Melchizedek belonged was a very different animal. Very strange, actually. Um, unknown to the Jews. Um, his father, his mother, and his line of descent were utterly unknown. Nobody knew. Nobody knows what, who his mother was, who his father was, what uh, line of, uh, what family uh, lineage he came from. And that's, by the way, what the translation means by without mother or father or genealogy. It doesn't mean that Melchizedek had no mother, that this, somehow this was the pre-incarnate Christ. I know there are people that say that that's the case. I do not think they're right. I think he was an actual historical figure. Uh, when it says without mother, without father, the, the point being made is uh, we have we know nothing of his his lineage. He just appears out of nowhere. 
so seemingly, without father or without mother. But that is the point. Unlike Levitical priests, whose family tree was carefully preserved, as is evident from uh, Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. Had 62 verses in Ezra chapter 2. Anyway, um, their, 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 their uh, lineage was very, very carefully preserved, and very intentionally so, so that we knew we had the right priest, uh, right high priest when uh, serving at the temple at any given time. There was also, by the way, not only no record of his mother or his father, or his, uh, his ancestry of any kind, but there was also no record of his birth or of his death, this Melchizedek fellow. And this is what it means, what the New American Standard means, when it says there, if I can find it, uh, having neither beginning of days nor end of life in verse 3. What he means there is not that he wasn't born or that Melchizedek didn't die. I have no doubt that he was born of a woman and of a man and that he died and is in the ground somewhere over in the ancient Near East. No, the the point of the text is that there's no record of his being born and there's no record of his dying. More to the point. So his priesthood seems to be perpetual. Because it doesn't say, as the Bible says all over, the Old Testament says everywhere, and he died. You see the point? There's no record of, and he died with reference to Melchizedek. So the uniqueness of Melchizedek's priesthood is being underscored by Moses in Genesis chapter 14, by Moses' silence on these matters. He doesn't talk about mom and dad. He doesn't talk about being born or where he was born or when he was born or when he died. It doesn't say anything. Moses doesn't say anything about those things. And that's his, the Holy Spirit speaking through uh, Moses' stylus or quill or whatever he was using was, um, was intentionally being vague about this man, Melchizedek. Rather than being based upon external considerations of birth or descent, like the Levitical priesthood descending from Aaron was, unlike that, Melchizedek's priesthood was based solely upon the call of God. It wasn't based on genealogy. It was based on God designating him. William Lane, in his commentary on Hebrews, writes, he observes, Without a recorded priestly genealogy, Melchizedek could not have qualified for Levitical priesthood. Would have been disqualified. Nevertheless, this man was priest of God Most High, and Abraham recognized his dignity. End quote. as one who occupied the dual offices of priest and king, Melchizedek, as I already said, was uh, a very, very much a type of the then future, from that day and age, future Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And this state of affairs, Melchizedek meeting Abraham and, and Moses writing about it in Genesis, when he was writing Genesis, and the fact that uh, uh, Melchizedek is a particularly good type of Christ figure because of that, that reality God himself brought into being providentially. All those connections, you see. He did this when in eternity past, he decreed that Melchizedek should be both a priest and a king and one of his, that is to say, the Lord's servants, albeit not descended from or related to Abraham as all subsequent Jewish and Israelites were. And also the Lord brought about this state of affairs, Melchizedek acting as, a, as an excellent type of Christ, when he inspired, again, Moses to write what he wrote and what he didn't write. That he didn't talk about genealogy or birth or death when he was writing Genesis 14. And that Melchizedek was an important type of Christ is something that the writer of the Hebrews clearly recognizes and wants his readers, and God wants you and I, because this sermon is in our Bible, to understand. This guy was special. Okay, so secondly, more briefly, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. We've looked at the... um, the uniqueness of his person, now the superiority of this priesthood that he uh, manned, if I can put it that way. It's underscored, its superiority is underscored by what transpired between Melchizedek and Abraham. Recall who Abraham is, okay? Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish race. They are sons and daughters of Abraham. That's what they call themselves. That's what they still call themselves, by the way. A lot of them. Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. He was, he was the guy in their past that, that epitomized who they were as a people. He embodied them, he symbolized them, he represented them for, and, and when the writer of the Hebrews, uh, was writing, already for two millennia. Now it's been four millennia. But for two millennia, when the writer of the Hebrews writings, Abraham was, he was it. He was the name that always popped up when you talked about, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, ancestry. He was also, uh, and by the way, the writer of Hebrews makes this point in verse 4. Now observe how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, there's his name, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. He's saying, note this. Abraham was also not only the great patriarch of the Jewish race, he is the Friend of God, Isaiah 41.8, James 2.23. He is the one to whom God made the gracious promise, promises of the Abrahamic covenant, which is most like the new covenant in the, amongst the old covenants, uh, amongst the Old Testament covenants, I should say. And he is, per uh, Paul's words in Romans 4.11, the father of all who believe. He is the father of all who believe. Also, Galatians makes, Paul makes that point in Galatians as well. From either a Jewish or a Christian point of view, Abraham was probably, if not the most important, this, you know, one of the two most important, David being the other, uh, Moses being the third, uh, of the most important 
uh, and noble and godly figures in the whole Old Testament. Whether you're talking to a Jew or a Christian, I think everybody would, most everybody would say those, uh, that Abraham was probably uh, the most important, if uh, one of the top three anyway. Yet, in spite of that fact, it was not Melchizedek who honored... Uh, it's not El- Melchizedek who honored Abraham... Rather, it was Abraham who honored Melchizedek. You see that? He did this by presenting Melchizedek again with one-tenth of the spoils, the choicest spoils, by the way, that he obtained from his recent victory over those four kings led by Chedorlaomer. What this action on Abraham's part, this giving of a tithe to Melchizedek, teaches us, according to the writer of the Hebrews here, is that in some sense, Melchizedek was an even more highly exalted figure than even the great patriarch Abraham, after whom the Abrahamic covenant was named. Melchizedek is more important, in some sense. That's what verse—I uh, won't reread verse four, but that's what verse four was. Point verse four was making. But this wasn't only—this wasn't the only act in. Uh, back in the Genesis account that pointed to Melchizedek's um, superiority, his um, uh, superior status over Abraham. So not only did he pay, did Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek, but also the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham rather than the other way around. Melchizedek blessed him. Verse 6. Uh, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek blessed Abraham who had the promises, meaning the covenant promises. The conclusion that the writer of the Hebrews draws from all this is found there in verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. He basically put Abraham down there. No, he really was exalting Melchizedek. Melchizedek was somehow of greater standing, greater importance than Abraham, the great father of the faith, of the Jewish faith. This must have been mind-boggling for his original hearers of this sermon. must have just... They must have just been like, what? But the writer then goes on to draw another, even more stunning conclusion from Melchizedek's reception of a tithe from Abraham. And that is that Melchizedek's priesthood was in fact superior to the Levitical priesthood descended from Aaron, established under the Mosaic Covenant. The writer of the Hebrews finds three evidences for the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. First, in the fact that while the Levitical priests' right to receive tithes tithes was derived from the commandments of Moses, now they were God's commands, but they were mediated through a man, Moses, so the Levitical priesthood's right to those tithes from from the peoples came through Moses' commandment in the law. Melchizedek's right to receive tithes, was not derived from 
the mediated law. No. It's clear, the clear implication of what's, what the writer here says is that his, uh, his authority to receive tithes, Melchizedek's, was derived from God alone. God just, without a mediator, said he gets tenth. That's the first evidence that his priesthood is superior to the the Aaronic priesthood. Second evidence that the writer lists for the superiority of his priesthood harkens back to an observation that the writer made back in verse 3. And that is that while the Levitical priests were mortal, that is, they all eventually died and had to be, be replaced, there's no mention in the scriptures, as I've already said, of Melchizedek's having died. No record of this man dying. Verse 8, And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in the case of one, but in that case, meaning in the case of Melchizedek, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. It's witnessed by silence, by the way. But it's still witnessed. An argument from silence actually can be persuasive. Just food for thought. And his point is that too, the perpetuity or seeming perpetuity of Melchizedek's priesthood is trumps the dead Levitical priests, the dying Levitical priests. We have records of their deaths, not a record of Melchizedek's death. And then the third evidence of the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood over that of the Levites is found in verses 9 and 10. Let me read it. And, and, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, from which Aaron was a Levite, the high, uh, first great uh, high priest, so then, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still, Levi, was still in the loins of his father, reference to Abraham, when Melchizedek met him and and Abraham paid a tithe. So Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Since these Levitical priests were descended again from him, yeah, I already said that, he paid a tithe. And not literally, of course, Levi wasn't there going, here's my tithe, but metaphorically, through the loins, as it were, of Abraham, uh, uh, anticipatorily, shall we say, uh, Levite paid, uh, and their family solidarity and identity with Abraham, the the Levitical high priests were paying a tithe to Melchizedek. So why does the writer spill so much ink here, proving the superiority of of Melchizedek to Abraham, and proving the superiority of, Ab- of Melchizedek's priesthood to that of Aaron and his descendants. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, it points us to the one of whom David spoke in Psalm 110.4, which he quotes in the last verse of 
chapter 6, and then unpacks in this passage. It points us to Jesus, the sacral king of heaven. It also points us to him because Melchizedek was one of the best, in some sense, a better type of Christ than even David because he occupied two offices. He was Aaron and David, uh, well, yeah, Aaron and David put together. Melchizedek was. And therefore, an even better representative of who the Messiah, whom we know, Jesus, uh, would be. And to point us the, the, the purpose of all this is to point his readers and to point us, and the Holy Spirit speaking through him is doing the same, to point us to the fact that the Savior of sinners, the only Savior of sinners, is the King of Heaven, is the High Priest ministering in the true sanctuary, which is in Heaven, not on Earth. And that that's the only That is the only mediator who can save. He must be the high priest. He must have the perfect sacrifice. And he must also be the king himself, God himself. And Jesus is that. And he's the only one who can save you. And me. And any sinner. And we're all sinners. He's the only one that can do it. Because he's the only perfect high priest. He's the only perfect king. And he offered the only perfect sacrifice on behalf of all those sinners who would put their trust in him and him alone for their salvation. Are you doing that? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and the only Savior of sinners, the only Redeemer of God's elect, are you putting your trust in Him? By the way, if you, it's by faith alone that we are justified, saved, born again. But justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by sanctification, which we read about in, in the Westminster Confession. If there's no, if there's no change... There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, which is what will happen if you become a Christian. That's the only way you become a Christian, by the way, is the Holy Spirit brings life where, there's, where you're dead before. If there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit, your faith, your profession to believe in Jesus as your Savior is hollow. It's a sham. I belabor this point. Off, perhaps, perhaps you hear it too often from me, but so many, there's so much easy believism in the church today. And that, by the way, doesn't mean that, you know, obtaining salvation, salvation is a free gift. It's not hard to become a, become a Christian. But becoming a Christian is becoming a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. And it changes your life entirely. And, it, and you're going to get changed by Jesus. And easy believism is there's no change. You just believe some facts and, and you go to heaven. 
because you believe a set of facts. The devils believe. James tells us. Of course, they're not in heaven, nor are they going there. No. Um, one must have the Jesus who is Savior and Lord, which manifests itself in sanctification in the justified uh, believer's life. Is that you? If it is, you can take no credit for that. None. That's the grace of God alone that has put you, made you aware of that and caused you to believe savingly on the Lord Jesus. It is all of grace. If you don't have Jesus that way, you're in a very, very terrible place. You're one breath away from eternity, and God could take, not give you another breath. And you would spend eternity suffering in a way hotter place than East Texas. And that heat is the wrath of God, by the way. It's not temperature. It's the judicial wrath of God, which we all deserve, but you will get unless you repent of your sins and trust Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. It's a free gift for the taking. But it'll change your life. He will change your life. But he offers to save you for free. Because he paid the price for all those who trust in him. Trust in him today if you haven't. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for, Lord Jesus, that you are the great the great king, the great high priest, far, far greater than Melchizedek, who was just a mere sinner with some fancy